Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. This was a week where Taylor Swift worked her way into mainstream economic discussions in two places. One, at Chair Powell's presser, via a comment from a reporter that the U.S. consumer seems fine, based in part on Swifties continuing to spend exorbitant sums of money to see her perform, and two, from a Robobank strategist who opined with tongue only partly in cheek that the Swift tour is confounding attempts at monetary tightening. I've clearly been paying attention to the wrong economic indicators. All right, this week our three things are, one, the rise in stocks. Is it threatening credit spreads? Two, New York Times says credit markets are creaking. We'll have a look. And three, economic divergence. Beware of focusing only on the aggregate. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. The rise in stocks. This has been an interesting year. How's that for an understatement? Coming off of one of the worst years in investing history, where risk sold off at historic proportions, we came into 2023 facing a Fed hell-bent on tightening financial conditions after its transitory fiasco. Economic growth was expected to slow to 0%. Now, we saw a table this week showing the year-end 2023 targets for the S&P 500 from 23 market forecasters. On January 1st, the median forecast for this group was 40-50, better year-on-year, on earnings growth expected to be 2%. Not surprisingly, given the year we just had, 19 of the 23 forecasters were calling for stocks to rise in 2023. Now, jumping ahead to today, 14 of the 23 have raised their year-end forecast, while only one cut. Overall, the median estimate has increased 6% from January to July. And that suggests, of course, that strategists opining on the riskiest part of the capital stack are broadly comfortable with the way this contraction is playing out thus far. And if we take stock of how the first half has played out, you can see what is driving that comfort. Inflation is coming down. The Fed has signaled that it is near the end of its hiking cycle. Real economic growth has remained positive. Unemployment has held in better than expected. Corporate earnings have held up relatively well with full-year 2023 consensus, calling for a modest 3% drop year-on-year. Looking ahead, we note the median year-end estimate today, in fact, is 4,300, a 6% downdraft over the second half. Only four of the 23 expect stocks to be higher year-end than where we are today, and a not insignificant six of the 23 forecasts are calling for a double-digit drop in stocks from current levels. So admittedly, all that caught us by surprise. Maybe it's because stocks, despite a robust first half, are still 5% below the cyclical peak reached at year-end 2021. Regardless, the consensus forecast suggests that we are slowing down, that the bite of monetary and bank loan tightening will intensify over the second half, that's our view, by the way, reducing economic growth below 1%. And maybe we got just a bit too excited about AI. For what it's worth, the consensus is calling for equal-weighted S&P 500 to flatline between now and year-end. The point is, if the wisdom of crowds is telling us that stocks are likely to sell off in the second half, it will be difficult for already tight credit spreads to grind tighter. 
All right, on to our second thing, creaking credit markets. That's the headline in a New York Times piece this week. The lead-in says, analysts warned that bankruptcies and defaults could jump as the world adjusts to higher interest rates. Okay, given that bankruptcies and defaults have been artificially reduced by $10 trillion of stimulus and monetary accommodation, it doesn't strike us as all that newsworthy. But after digging into the piece, we've got some issues. It's dated and alarmist. Let's start with the headline. Are credit markets creaking? Hard to make that case. Both investment grade and high yield spreads are well inside not only recession levels, but also their respective long-term through the cycle averages as well. Asset-backed spreads have also come in as investors have gotten more comfortable that a softer landing is developing. Measures of financial conditions are back to normal levels, as are measures of financial stress, such as the St. Louis Fed Financial Stress Index. Both have largely recovered from the impact of bank failures in the spring, as those developments have proven to be rather idiosyncratic with limited risk of contagion. Markets overall aren't creaking, they're functioning well. So let's talk about the financial system. It's structurally improved since the GFC through the de-risking of the banking system and the growth of leveraged and private credit markets. In the past, risk was concentrated in a dozen or so global banks where misaligned incentives led to piles of mispriced risk when the cycle turned. Now, post the GFC, regulators and policymakers pushed a lot of that risk out of the banking system and into investment portfolios around the world. That has the effect of diffusing risk, creating in the process an improved shock absorber to markets when the cycle turns. Consider this comment out this week from Lazard CEO Ken Jacobs, speaking from an advisor's role rather than a financier's role, so less speaking of his book. You have this massive source of capital in private capital now. The growth of the private credit markets has really supercharged the ability of companies to get financing. So when you see the comment from one market watcher quoted in the New York Times piece as saying the financial system is, quote, a machine and it's shaking terribly because of all the stress put on it, unquote. That describes the financial system in 2008, but doesn't seem to fit today. Now, to be clear, the economy and interest rates are normalizing, entering what we refer to as a new paradigm, which is really an old one with a higher cost of capital than where we've been for some time now. Firm cash flows will be tested against not only higher rates, but also slower growth, technological disruption, higher costs related to the energy transition, and increased geopolitical risk. But we're coming off of record high margins, so well-positioned, well-run companies have some room to give. And interest rates are still relatively low, with a sub-4% 10-year sitting on or about its 30-year average. We also believe the Fed is prepared to cut rates should its higher rate regime take an inordinate toll. But that's not our base case. All right, on to our third thing, economic divergence. Now, I have to admit, making sense of where we are economically is much more complicated than what we got out of the Fed on Wednesday. In the aggregate, we learned the Fed's characterization of the economy improved, judging by its decision to change the adjective attached to growth in the statement from, quote, modest to, quote, moderate. We also learned the Fed staff is no longer modeling a recession. That's big news. And right on cue, Thursday's GDP report came in at a relatively robust 2.4%. 
and that print was not distorted unduly by inventory moves or trade, which were more modest factors in the most recent report. Remember, the Fed's longer-run estimate for the economy is 1.8% growth. So we're actually running hot. Are we? In the aggregate, you can make that case. Certainly, broadly-based risk markets are suggesting as much. But we were reminded today by a colleague that McDonald's had just reported a healthy beat. That strikes me as a trade-down story among consumers, where wealthier customers are increasingly dining at McDonald's, while core customers are trading down to fewer items and or the dollar menu. Now, we came upon a deck of sorts this week by Paul Horvath, CEO of Orchard Global, the alternative asset manager, titled, quote, Winter is coming, unquote. It makes the case that the U.S. consumer is under stress, which will ultimately lead to recession. And nothing in the deck was all that revelatory, but it is a reminder that the middle and lower income class consumers are facing significant headwinds of higher debt burdens and cost of living expenses. We have seen this story for some time now weigh on the subprime space. Now, taking all of this into consideration, you start to see the contours of this downturn, including a divergence between those consumers or businesses that are well-positioned to ride this out and those that are more vulnerable. Overall, in the aggregate, economic growth, unemployment, corporate earnings growth are all going to be okay. The more vulnerable parts of the economy, paycheck-to-paycheck consumers, by the way, that's 60% of adults, according to Lending Club. And businesses with deficient business models and or inappropriate high leverage are going to struggle. In credit market terms, that means higher rated credit should be fine. It is that which falls into the more vulnerable category that should and probably will underperform. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, the rise in stocks, a coming correction figures to lean on credit spread. Two, the New York Times says credit markets are creaking. They're not. And three, economic divergence. In the aggregate, we're looking at a soft landing, but be aware of exposure to more vulnerable sectors. As always, thanks for joining. Don't forget to check in on kbra.com for our ratings reports and our latest research. See you next week. Hello, listeners. Join me, Van Hesser, KBRA's chief strategist for in-depth conversations with credit experts in my new monthly podcast, Leading Voices in Credit, where I'll interview market professionals on the latest trends in credit markets. That's Leading Voices in Credit with Van Hesser. Subscribe now.